The following message was given by Nick Kidwell, the senior pastor of Valley Creek Church. For more information about the church, visit us online at www.valleycreek.church. Good morning again to those who don't know me. My name is Nick Kidwell. Uh, I am the senior pastor of Valley Creek Church, and we are so glad that you are here with us this morning. We do hope that you will uh, stay and enjoy lunch with us afterwards. And to everybody, just so you know, there will be additional seating, too, in the back building in the gen ed room. You can follow signs back there. I want to make that, I don't know if that announcement will get out later, but just so you know, uh, there are places to sit and hope that we'll be able to uh, all just come together and enjoy fellowship with one another. Well, uh, we are carrying on this morning in our Matthew series. Uh, The last few weeks, we've been watching an unfolding theme in Matthew 18 surrounding the nature of God's people. In the beginning of 18, we saw that God's people are to be like children in their humility, dependent, and trusting upon Him. Then last week, we saw God's concern for His little ones. Uh, His people, his children, his concern for them to walk in holiness and to avoid causing one another to stumble into sin. Now this week, we see the theme of the children continued once more, but it concerns the question of what do we do when one of us does stumble? What do we do when we sin against each other? What about when we sin egregiously? What should our heart and our goal be towards one another? Many people, particularly outside of the church, like to use the Lord's words in Matthew 7, judge not that you be not judged, to silence the discussion of sin. We should not be telling one another what to do, the thinking goes. Well, this, of course, is not what the Lord meant in the context of Matthew 7, and we'll see from our passage today, it's not the Lord's intent that we refrain from discerning between sin and righteousness, but even our culture, who likes to use that verse to silence talk of sin, does not practice what it preaches. The great irony of a highly tolerant culture that is unhinged from divine oversight is that it becomes actually quite intolerance in its governance. Take cancel culture, which in in its extreme forms is a complete opposite of tolerance. Cancel culture is a form of mob justice. Rather than reasoned, thoughtful, careful handling of wrongdoing, Working towards a goal of reconciliation, redemption, and change, cancel culture is at its worst, rash in its judgments, partial and biased, using limited facts for assessment, completely lacking a sense of judicial order, inciting a mob mentality, subjective in determining right from wrong, spiteful with a desire to avenge, and unforgiving. Off with her head, the mob cries. And for those who participate in this circus, beware, no one is safe from its wrath. Those crying off with their heads today may quickly be the ones whose heads are coming off tomorrow. We should not want to be part of that system. However, we also don't want to think that we have no responsibility to deal with sin particularly as God's people in God's church, we are called to address sin 
in the lives of our brothers and sisters in Christ. But our approach is not rash, unforgiving, and vindictive. But rather, our approach towards one another is to be caring, concerned, and willing to forgive. The Lord plans to use us to keep one another, his little ones, from straying. And that's what we will see here in Matthew chapter 18 this morning. So please, if you will, turn with me to Matthew 18, and we will be reading verses 10 through 20. I am going to pray for us. Father, thank you that you care. And as our passage will remind us this morning, you care deeply for us. You don't throw your hands up in frustration. Father, you are perfectly just. You are eternally patient and merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Yet you do take sin seriously. So I pray that you would help us to understand your word this morning. I pray that your word would have an effect on us of of a community to increase the uh, seriousness of our understanding of sin, but also to increase our compassion towards one another as we work um, towards righteousness together. Be with us in this time of diving into your words, I pray. In the name of your son, Jesus, amen. Okay, Matthew 18, beginning in verse 10. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two brothers along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of... If two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where there are two or three gathered in my name, there am I among them. This is the word of the Lord. There are three main components to this passage. We see the discussion of the straying sheep, 10 to 14, the the procedure to restore a wayward brother or sister in verses 15 to 17, and then this discussion on authority granted to God's gathered people in 18 and 20. These sections, they form a tight bond that deal with the issue of how to handle a backsliding brother or sister in the church. As we were reminded last week, sin is very serious and comes with serious consequences, certainly for the unrepentant who is not covered by the blood of Christ, but it's also still quite serious for believers 
deep entanglement in sin leads us away from the Lord and can wind up proving that our faith in Christ was never sincere to begin with. We know we will not be perfect in this life. We will all continue to sin, but as we grow in Christ, the frequency and severity of sin should hopefully be on the decline in our lives. Unfortunately, there will be times when sin and its temptations lure some among, some among us in more serious ways away from the Lord toward the life that we repented of. All sin is serious, but there are sins that reveal within a person a departure from the Lord. It's one thing to have a hateful thought towards another. It is serious. The Lord tells us to hate in our heart is like murder. However, the Lord makes clear it takes a particularly hard and heavy-handed rebellion against God to turn that hateful thought into cold, premeditated, murderous action. And what our passage is largely addressing this morning is how do we handle situations when professing believers in Christ go beyond the bounds of normal sin struggles, as much as we can call it that. We should not sin, but when we're sinning egregiously, venturing into hard-hearted, stubborn rebellion that no longer reflects Christ. And what our passage has to say is that we all play a part in keeping one another from this fate. At Valley Creek, we joyfully embrace the practice of church membership. We do this because we recognize that the Lord has not just saved us as individuals, but as individuals who are part of a body and who have roles and responsibilities towards other members of that body. This is what the scriptures show us. We are part of the church, universal, yes, but we're also to be part of a local gathering of believers that can know us and be known by us for mutual care and support in our pursuit of the Lord. And one of the gifts of local church membership is the practice of church discipline. Now, it may sound strange to you to hear me call church discipline a gift, but make no mistake, when done properly, it is a gift to us as believers. We are told the Lord disciplines those that He loves. Again, last week, we talked about the deadly, serious nature of sin. Church discipline and mutual accountability to one another is part of the Lord keeping us safe from the deceitfulness of sin. Though it was in its infant state here, the Lord is already painting a picture of what it means to be the church. And part of the church's responsibility is to care for one another should we begin to stray in order that we might be restored. And that's perhaps the biggest difference between cancel culture and Christ and the church. Whereas cancel culture has a goal to shame and cast out without hope for change, 
any form of rebuke or exhortation or discipline within the church enacted by an individual or the church corporately toward another believer is not a means of vindictiveness, but is a means to restore, to bring repentance and to point one another towards Christ. It's a move toward one another, not against one another. And so I want us to consider this morning what this passage has for us individually and corporately, so that we might practice mutual accountability on all its various levels as the Lord calls us to. So we're going to break it down into its three sections and talk about the heart of restoration, the process of restoration, and the authority behind the restorative process. So first, the heart of restoration Many of us are likely familiar with this parable of the lost sheep. However, I think when I hear it spoken of the most, and even when I think of it, we think of how Luke records this parable rather than how Matthew does. Both pull out this image of the shepherd going and seeking a lost sheep, but the parable was used by the Lord in different contexts, in different settings. Luke records a time... The Lord spoke this parable in the context of the Pharisees and the tax collectors who are grumbling because Jesus is sitting with sinners and engaging with them, and he uses it for evangelistic purposes to say, I'm going after the lost sheep who have not yet come into the fold. If you're here and you've not received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, know that the discussion we are about to enter into does reflect Christ's heart for you. If you don't know the Lord, the scriptures make clear you are lost in your sin, but the Lord's heart is toward you in compassion. And I pray you hear his call this morning. But evangelism is not the context here in Matthew. In fact, this whole discussion is an in-house discussion about how God's people are to relate to one another. This whole business of pointing out sin and accountability presupposes trust in the Lord. This is a discussion for what do we do with those who profess faith in Christ yet are walking as if they hadn't. We have a different standard and responsibility towards that person. And we're to have a different way of relating to sin in their lives than someone who has never professed Christ at all, who has yet to repent of anything. And so in this context, this parable is speaking to a sheep who has already come in, but now is wandering away. This is picturing a person who's getting sucked into a pattern of serious sin and unrepentance that's leading them to be hardened toward the Lord and distancing themselves from Him and His people. It's a picture of a a backslider. We might use that phrase. And it's a very dangerous place to be. Sheep are not smart creatures. (laughs) They need much care, just like us. That's why we talk about sheep a lot. Jesus talks about sheep a lot. And when they wander from the fold, they open themselves up to attack. They can become disoriented and they're unable to figure out their ways back home. 
and they can even wander right off cliffs or stumble into other deadly perils. When we mess with sin and when we wander from the Lord, we are in the same kind of precarious situation. And what this parable is, is not primarily warning us to avoid wandering, it certainly is that, but its aim is to give us fuel to care for the wanderer. It calls us away from indifference or irritation at one who is stumbling. How does it do that? Well, it shows us that the Lord cares, so we must care. Already the Lord has made clear the extreme value he places on the spiritual well-being of his children. He said earlier in 18 that it would be better for a person to have a millstone placed around their neck and thrown into the ocean than to lead one of his little ones into sin. We get that same heart here. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. Do not despise God's children. We as believers are not to look on one another with contempt. This is true of all people. The Lord tells us to love our enemies and and to pray for those who persecute us. But it is especially true within the household of God where our love for one another is to be the marker by which the onlooking world can tell that we are disciples of Jesus Christ. But the Lord doesn't just tell us not to despise one another, but he gives us help by describing his own love and concern for his children. And he starts with this mention of the angels. And I'm just going to briefly pass by this one. This, I do not believe, is a basis to construct a, a, guard, a theory of guardian angels or each person specifically having an angel over them, but rather a general reality. We know that part of the role of angels is to serve mankind. In protection and support, the book of Hebrews says that angels are ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation. But why is this statement significant for us as we think about one another? Why is this mention of angels coming up? What God is saying is that these angelic beings, these hosts of heaven who are able to stand before the throne of God in holiness, who cause people who encounter them to quake in fear from their radiance, these glorious beings stand as servants before me for the sake of my children, i.e., my children are of such concern to me that I have assigned these glorious heavenly beings to serve on their behalf. You think angels are amazing. Angels are just my chosen servants for my children. What value the Lord places on humanity, on his people. But he doesn't stop there. He then uses the parable of the lost sheep. When a sheep begins to stray and wander, what's the heart of a good shepherd? Well, it's a heart of great concern. The shepherd doesn't throw his hands up in frustration. He doesn't cut his losses and let the little troublemaker go. No, this sheep is his. He has investment in this sheep. He isn't just going to let it go. And so 
whether by means of a sheep pen or entrusting a hired hand, we have to believe he's taking care of the rest. He leaves the flock and he goes to find the one who's wandered. And when he does, there's great rejoicing. That's the heart of the Lord for us. His response isn't finger wagging and eye rolling, but joyful embrace. So much so that it says he rejoices more over the return of one lost than all those who stayed. This is the heart of the Lord. Not that we are to stray, that we might increase his joy. That's not at all what's being said. Paul addresses that in Romans. But rather that we would see the great joy and delight that the Lord takes in deliverance of individuals from sin. He is greatly glorified as his grace and his mercy are extended. We see this same heart in the parable of the prodigal son, which is another very famous one. The father running with delight towards this son who returned even though he had disgraced and rejected his father previously. And in that parable, we see the heart we're supposed to avoid. The older brother who did not leave and so he stands frustrated at the jubilation of his returned brother. He doesn't get it. Why is dad so happy? As believers, we are to consider one another more significant than ourselves. We are to take great investment in the spiritual well-being of one another. That means we should know each other and we should be known by each other. That's why membership in a local church is so important. A formal declaration, I am with these people So they can know me and I can know them. That that they might love on me and be a safeguard for me should I stray and I can do the same for them. We are told to hold each other accountable to God and to his word. Praying with and for one another. Speaking the word of God to and over each other. Providing counsel and wisdom and seeking the Lord together. And that can be easy to do when times are smooth, but it gets messy and hard when sin begins to entangle. People are needier and can be harder to bear with as they stumble in the dark. Your counsel goes unheard. Your care is ignored. Your efforts to help are returned with rejection or you are sinned against. In these times, When dealing with brothers or sisters who are struggling, who may not be the easiest to love in that moment, we can easily grow impatient and lack concern. But the Lord calls us to follow his example and to persevere with one another. The process of bringing back a struggling saint can often be a long one. The process of living with any saint is a long one. takes time, effort, emotion, spiritual energy. It's, it can be exhausting. And our temptation can be to throw our hands up and say, I'm done. And while, as we will see in a minute, there can be a point 
where a release of a person fully to the Lord's care whose heart is so hardened, they are hardened towards all accountability, for the most part, that will not be what we encounter and cannot be an excuse for our unwillingness to bear with one another in love. It takes work. It takes energy, it takes patience, but this is what our shepherd has done with us every day as we go astray in our hearts and we act in foolishness, yet he is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love towards us. He's calling us to reflect that heart towards our brothers and sisters. And he has given us his spirit, a spirit of power, and love, and self-control that we might reflect his heart. That's the heart of restoration. The Lord wishes that none of his children should stray, that none of these little ones should perish, and we ought to have the same high concern for one another as well. But then the passage carries on and lays out for us a guide. And how to practically handle situations of sin and wrongdoing and wandering. This is our second point, the process of restoration. One of the comments we made about cancel culture is its unruliness. There's no sense of order or direction in ensuring that justice is coming to pass. That's not the heart of the Lord. He does not want mob rule, but helps us approach dealing with sin in controlled, judicious ways. What we see laid out here for approaching a brother or sister in sin is a process that does allow wrongs to be addressed, allows sin to be challenged, but also provides safeguards against personal vindictiveness, and hasty judgment. Before walking through this process laid out here, I want to lay out a few assumptions. First, this passage is again assuming, especially as it progresses on, serious sin. We certainly aren't approaching one another with every instance of every little indiscretion. We certainly want to address sin categories with one another if there are patterns of sin. But much of our time together will involve forbearance and patience and gentleness. You just sinned. Oh, you just did it again. You just said, we're not, that's not what he's saying here. The Lord himself does not deal with all of our sins at once or make us aware of all of them every time. It would be overwhelming to be confronted each and every time we misstep. So there's going to be a lot of forbearance. This passage also mentions wrong done to an individual. However, the principles don't apply only to wrongs directly done to us. There is a general expectation that there's a pattern of sin that needs to be addressed as a community, that we would hold each other accountable even if the wrong is not done directly to you. Also, this passage focuses more on the one who is in sin than the one who has been wronged. This passage is not directly speaking to how do you seek restitution for wrongs done to you, but has a focus on how do we as a community care for those who are doing wrong who are wandering into sin? How do we restore them to the Lord? 
We certainly do want to help and execute justice for those who have been wronged, and there are many passages that deal with that. But again, the focus here is on the desire that this wrongdoer would be restored to repentance, even if they harmed us. That said, there could be situations where you have been so harmed that it would be too challenging for you to be the one to address sin with the one who has sinned against you, perhaps There's been abuse or or extreme wrong. In those cases, others need to be pulled in right from the start. Not to mention legal authorities that would get involved if something were the case there. That, again, these are, we're talking about general principles here. But again, there is still a focus on seeing the sinner restored. And that is not to the detriment of one who's been sinned against. As a community in Christ, we want to see our brothers and sisters restored in their faith. If an offender is not repentant, they will meet the consequence. That's laid out here. And if they are, that is a victory for the whole community. Repentance is the goal. There's more that could be said about that, nuances and circumstances that we just don't have time to get into, and so I'll leave those prefaces there for now. So since the Lord cares so deeply that his children would not wander and rejoices so exceedingly when they've been restored in faith, how do we approach a believer if they're wandering into sin? Well, the first thing we see is that we should approach them alone at first when possible. Again, This would not be the recommendation if safety is a concern or there's emotional distress. Others need to be involved in that and perhaps do that on your behalf. But generally, this is our first step. It's to go to them privately. Why is this the case? Well, for one, it avoids unnecessary public shame. If we can reclaim them without the broader church becoming aware, that's a win, We aren't looking to do what the cancel culture does and shame one another publicly at the drop of a hat. It also safeguards against gossip. If you have an issue with another brother or sister, you ought to take that issue to them directly and not go spilling the tea about it to everyone you meet. That's gossip. Now, that's not to say you can't speak to a close confidant. It may be prudent for you to seek counsel before approaching someone else or to have assistance in prayer. Sometimes sometimes a wise counselor might show you that you're off in your perspective and there's nothing to be addressed. But even if you seek a wise counselor, that counsel should be limited. You should be seeking to protect the dignity of the one that you are speaking of and the counsel should be Actionable, And what I mean by that is you aren't just blowing off steam, but you're seeking help and knowing what to do. There have been times in my life where I've given counsel to someone who shared with me about a struggle they're dealing with in relation to someone else. And after a few times of sharing with me and no action on their part, I have said, you either need to say something to them or stop saying something to me. I'm not here just so you can talk about them to me. It doesn't help them. It doesn't help you. It doesn't help me. And it won't help the body. It's not dealing with the problem. So our first step is to go to them in private 
and seek to appeal to their conscience in the Lord. Following that, there are results that could follow. We pray that the brother would turn. That's the goal. So we pray that would be it. But there's a chance in this you might realize after talking with them, things aren't what you thought they were or weren't what they seemed, and maybe that's the end of it. But then unfortunately, there is the chance that they might remain hardened and unwilling to repent, unwilling to listen. This then is where we start to move into the church discipline process, where the broader body starts getting involved to see this person brought to restoration. So the next step the Lord calls us to is drawing in a few other witnesses, still keeping it small, not looking to shame, put this in front of the whole church. These would be other brothers and sisters in the church who are coming with you in a heart of concern and love, who are desiring to see repentance of the one who's in sin and who can be trusted not to spread the word, as it were, among the body. They may have witnessed this pattern directly themselves or perhaps with what you have shared with them. They agree with you that the brother or sister seems to be in sin and needs exhortation. And so you come together as a small group and meet with this brother or sister. And let me say, in all of these phases, every step of the process must be showered in prayer, must not be hasty. And every point of intervention must center around God's word and what God has to say. Say a brother or sister is in sexual sin. Perhaps they're walking in adultery or engaging in some other ungodly practices. You don't just share your opinions or or spew out your emotions. You point them to the scriptures. You remind them of God's word. You call them to walk in a manner fitting of their commitment to the Lord and the rebirth that has been worked in them through the Holy Spirit. These are opportunities for us to remind of truth. If then, following such a meeting, the brother or sister is still unrepentant, they've heard God's word, they refuse to listen, they're making no efforts to change their behaviors, their behaviors are totally unfitting for a child of God, then the formal act of Bringing it to the church is the next move. This then would be a situation where all the members of the church are pulled together and made aware of the circumstance, where the brother or sister is present and is held accountable, having to look upon all those in their community who have joined together to point them toward truth and hopefully lead them to repentance. Why must everyone be involved? Why does it need to get to this point? Well, there's several reasons. For one, we are all accountable to one another as God's children, particularly in a local church. This brother or sister made a commitment to this community and vice versa to walk with the Lord and encourage others to do so as well. So it's then before all these brothers and sisters that one has to stand. Our sin, we talked about this last week, our sin affects the whole community. And when we sin, we break our commitment to one another of pursuing the Lord together. Another reason we do this is because it highlights the severity of the action. 
It reminds those of us in the community that this type of behavior is unbefitting of a child of God, that it is extremely dangerous and opposed to his will, and it must not be engaged with. We can't be cavalier with egregious sin among us. It will only lead the rest of us down the same path. And it will hopefully burden the conscience of the one who is sinning to have to face their brothers and sisters and see how grave the seriousness of their sin. And again, keep in mind, pulling the church together, this is not a public shaming event. The spirit of such shouldn't be, oh, look at that dirty sinner over there. How could they? It is how sad I am to see such brokenness among us. How I pray and hope that the Lord would restore their soul and guard us from the same folly. It's care. It's love. This process, while it does have disciplinary elements, it's not punitive in its goal, but restorative. The hope is repentance and restoration. But if, even after being brought before the whole church, this brother or sister does not repent, then we are told they are to be put out of fellowship. As verse 17 says, they're to be treated as a Gentile or a tax collector. Historically, to the Jew, the Gentile and tax collectors were sinners, unclean, unable to come into fellowship with God's people. Now, you may think, but doesn't Jesus tell us to have compassion on the Gentiles and the tax collectors? Yes, he does, but that's not the angle he's using it for here in this statement. He's not saying, and if they fail to repent, show them great compassion like Gentile and tax collector and embrace them. No, he's saying it in the traditional Jewish perspective of they need to be put out of fellowship. That's not to say we don't still love them. We're again told to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. But what it does mean is, is things can't just be status quo. As a community, we unite together to show this person that from our limited earthly perspective, we cannot affirm their standing before Christ. And as they continue to claim that they love the Lord but behave the way that they are, we can't let their actions defame the name of Christ for their good, for our good, and for God's glory. That means we, we wouldn't allow them to partake of communion. We wouldn't interact with them as if they were still walking with the Lord. We wouldn't speak with them in such a way to make them think that they're just fine. We would treat them as we would anyone else who does not profess Christ. When I speak to an unbelieving friend who I know does not love the Lord, I don't talk to them about Jesus as if they agreed with me on everything. That's how we then begin to approach this brother or sister. It's evangelistic now in mode hoping to call them to repentance, to see their need to turn to the Lord. Now, there is a lot more that could be said here, questions that come up, and, and again, time is limited, but the, pr the principle is this. They need to feel the effect and know that all is not well with their soul. They can't just think things are just the same. And again, as we are reminded elsewhere in the Scriptures, this is for their good with the hope of repentance. Paul, in the book of 1 Corinthians, uses strong language as he addresses the church, instructing them to enact church discipline on a man who was unrepentant and sleeping with his father's wife. Paul says, 
when you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his, why? So that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. He's saying at that point, you let them go into their sin in hopes that they will see their folly. Like the prodigal son who's wallowing with the pig saying, what in the world am I doing? We hope that they see that. What's the goal? It's salvation. The goal is repentance. This is challenging. And though I pray it's uncommon, I know we will have times when we have to walk through this together as a community. But these processes are a grace to us. It's hard, but it's worth it. Remember, God cares deeply for each one of us. We have to do the same for each other. And then the final thing we see in this section is the authority behind this restorative process. Matthew includes these last few verses to remind us that when we walk through this process, we aren't doing it in our own power or following our own plans. We aren't doing it alone. No, we are serving as the hands and feet of Christ, having been given the authority to do such things from God himself. These verses 18 and 19 should sound familiar to us. In chapter 16, after Peter declares Jesus to be the Christ, Jesus says the exact same words to him. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. He now says it in plural form to all of us. This means those aren't special powers endowed to Peter, but Jesus is showing here that we have been given an authority in Christ to bring the will of God to pass on the earth. Now, this authority is not one of a blank check. Whatever we do, God will give a stamp of approval to. But rather, it's a statement that when we act in accordance with God, in accordance with his will, According to his word, when we pronounce the truth of the gospel, when we declare right from wrong in accordance to what God has revealed to us, when we do these things, we have the authority of heaven behind us. When we act according to God's will, God is with us in that action. This is expressed both through the image of binding and loosing, or calling sin to account, or pronouncing freedom in Christ, and it's true of our prayerful request to God as well. And that mention of whatever you ask, it's again not a blank check so that as long as at least two of us are together, we're going to get whatever we want from the Lord. I guarantee you if we all prayed right now for a pink elephant to appear in the parking lot, there ain't going to be no pink elephant out there. But we know that God is with us. That's what this is telling us. And we know God will hear us as we seek his will, and we know God will accomplish that which he has promised to do. These verses remind us of the authority we have in Jesus' name to hold one another accountable. And they're a reminder to us of our need to do these things in community. Is God not with us when we are alone? Of course he is. So, so why then does he mention needing two or three? What the Lord is saying is that there is strength and security in numbers. 
Why does this process of restoration end with the church being called together? We've talked about some of those things, but because when we are together, we have the Spirit of God common among us. We have the Spirit moving and working in us as a community. As we come together, we we will be safeguarded, again, against personal vendetta or short-sightedness. Yes, I'm the pastor of this church, but I need your help. You have the Spirit of God within you. And there will be times you say to me, I don't know if you're thinking about this right. You can say that to me. We need each other. We benefit from coming together with each of us having the Spirit of God within us. These verses remind we have the great privilege and responsibility to do the work of the Lord. But these verses not only remind us of what authority we lean on in helping wayward brothers and sisters, but should also comfort us by reminding us of the one who is actually doing this restorative work. We are powerless to change anything. We are relying on the Spirit of God to move within hearts to bring conviction. If a brother or sister has gone wayward and reaches the end of this process, we know that it is God who has to move This pushes us to prayer and utter dependence upon God. He who is able to do more than we could ask or imagine is the one who's calling us to this task of mutual accountability, meaning he can bring back the wayward. We're not going to give up praying and hoping for those who have strayed. He can bring them back. I've seen him do it. And I was stirred in conviction this week as I was preparing this message, thinking of some in my life who I don't pray for enough in hopes that they would be restored. We need to pray like the Lord really does care about them and pray like the Lord really does have the power to transform. And that's true for us in our lives as we deal with sin. The Lord cares about these things. We need to pray with conviction that the Lord would help us all grow in faith and turn from sin. We aren't walking right now through this corporately as a church, but we need to be prepared. And individually, we need to be reminded of the responsibility we all have of loving one another. And loving one another involves not allowing each other to wander off into sin. So let's together passionately pursue holiness ourselves and let's do everything we can to encourage each other towards that pursuit also. That we might all be found to be standing firm at the end. Pray with me if you would. Father, thank you for the great privilege of being with your people. Thank you for the great privilege of being united in the spirit of wisdom and truth, the spirit of love, your Holy Spirit. Lord, we need help. We need help to walk in holiness ourselves, and we need help for discernment and how to help others in that process as well. Lord, I pray that there would not be rampant sin among us, egregious sin among us, showing hard-heartedness and rejection of you, God. But I pray that when those things do pop up, that we are gentle, we are patient, loving, and willing to bring truth. And Lord, we entrust all things to your hand. And Father, I just pray, it's my 
believe uh, that there are a lot of people in this room who have friends or family or things come to mind as they think of folks who have, who have walked away from the faith, who are currently entrenched in deep sin in their lives, who are making poor decisions. Father, that you would fill our hearts with hope that you can and do save and you can turn around any situation. I pray for any of those people who are on minds of folks in this room, wake them up today. Lord, we pray that you would stir their hearts, that they would want to take the slightest step towards you this morning and keep us firmly among your fold in the safety of your care. Help us not to stray and wander. We pray all of these things in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. You've been listening to a message by Nick Kidwell given at Valley Creek Church. For more information on the church and other messages, please visit us online at www.valleycreek.church.